Lord, we thank you that we have enough grace for today. Lord, bless us. And God, we want to come here today on this Lord's Day and be equipped for the work of ministry, every one of us. And so we pray that as we look on Jesus Christ this morning, we would see him in his glory and, and we would be moved toward praise and worship and application. And Lord, I pray that during the service after this Sunday school hour, you would bless our time. Lord, that we would see Christ exalted, high and exalted, that we would even have an Isaiah-like moment where, where we tremble before you, only to be reassured with a coal from your altar. So thank you, Lord. Bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we looked at the person of Christ, part one, and we focused on the humanity of Christ. But let me, let me just read a verse from Galatians chapter 1. Paul was coming against a false gospel that was being presented, and it was more of a works-based gospel. Yeah, you can start off with Jesus, but then you've got to obey the law. And Paul, to head that off, he says right out of the gate to the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you already, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Doesn't get any more intense than that. And, and so it's, it's very simple. When we see faiths like the Mormon faith that, Jesus, that, that comes along and they have this new revelation about the way of salvation, even if that was a real angel, let him be accursed. And so, but for us here today, this is relevant because we need to know who Jesus is. That's at the very center of the gospel message. And the Bible presents him as both fully man and fully God. And, and we better get this right. This is at the very center of our faith. And if we don't get this right, then we are just spinning our wheels. And so the, the main idea is Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man and will be forever. We'll never be able to explore this fully. The fact that he took on flesh and will keep that flesh forever and ever and ever. It's mind-boggling. But last week we looked, well, before, before, oh, let me just lay out four premises. Jesus Christ is fully and completely human. Jesus Christ is fully and completely divine. The divine and human natures are distinct, but the divine and human natures of Christ are completely united in one person. Now, this is not a contradiction. This is a paradox. They're completely distinct, but completely united. Now, three cautions as we look at this subject. Belief, our belief in this must be rooted in Scripture. If it's not rooted in the Bible, it's going to crumble as soon as we, as soon as we hear the first argument. So it's got to be rooted in the Bible. 
It's the word of the Lord that stands forever. Number two, must maintain a balanced doctrine because our tendency is to lean toward one or the other. And as soon as we do in any way, we distort who Jesus is and how we are to understand him. And then number three, we're not to treat this as a check, a box to just check. It's really easy to do that. Okay, I believe that. Great, let's move on to other truths. This is, this is a universe to explore. And I'm just going to apologize in advance because I've got nine pages here. And that's way too many. And so we're just, we're just not going to be able to explore this universe. Which, I mean, just scratching the surface 100%. But go from here, as I know you have already, and continue to explore this. Explore this in the service today as we go into the worship service, as we sing songs, as we hear preaching, as we pray together, think about who this Christ is. And you, are, you will be applying this Sunday School lesson right now. So last week, we looked at the humanity of Jesus. This will be brief. We looked at the fact that he had a human birth, a human body, human development, just like the rest of us. Human mind, he had to grow. Human emotions, he experienced sorrow. It's unbelievable that also human testimony, that the people around him viewed him as human. This is God, second person of the Trinity, and yet even his own brothers who grew up in the same bedroom viewed him as just a man. And, and they're probably irritated with him. And so Isaiah 53 says, he was not just ordinary, he was less than ordinary. Like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was, dis he was dis despised, and we esteemed him not. So not only was he so clearly human, but he was like at the bottom tier of what we would call respectable humanity. It's unbelievable. So we looked at that very briefly last week. And, and by the way, if Jesus had a human body, then our bodies really matter. And what we do with our bodies really matter. And, and that's why we seek to grow in holiness, becoming more like Christ. But that's why also we don't despise the fact that it's un, we are created in his image. And God was willing to take on flesh forever. And so it gives a dignity to mankind, etc. We looked at his temptations and the depth of suffering. You know, as a human, I believe that Jesus, when he would approach the cross, he reached that moment of absolute hopelessness. I think as he faced the punishment that was coming, he was left not with, well, this is going to hurt for about three days, or, or man, this is going to be tough for the next hour, and then, and then it'll be over, and I'll be in unspeakable bliss. I think in that moment, he experienced what everyone who dies apart from hope in Christ will experience, and that's absolute hopelessness. So here's Jesus, the sinless one, on the cross for us with no hope. No sense of light at the end of the tunnel, but this is my lot, eternal damnation. Experience that in our place as a man. 
But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. He was also fully God. And in the Old Testament, we see this. And I'm going to approach this a little bit differently than, than Wayne Grudem, but I, I shouldn't because his is <laughs> way better. But, um, but let's, just, let's just look at the entire Old Testament just, just briefly. Um, in the garden, he created us in perfection, and we failed. And then Cain and Abel. Okay, well, let's, let's, start, let's have some children, and maybe we'll have salvation through here. Fail. The world failed. Noah, let's start over. Noah, now you know what happened. Fail. Then God raised up Abraham and created a whole nation of people. Fail. Raised up Moses to save Israel from slavery in Egypt. Fail. Even Moses failed. Raised up a, a Levitical priesthood under Aaron and his sons who were both priests and they would offer sacrifices for our failure. But even that failed. And all of it was pointing to what would come. He made a promise to, Abra or to, to Moses. Hey, the Lord's going to raise up a prophet like you from among, and, and, but he's going to come and he's going to be what you never were. I'm paraphrasing it. He's going to be what the ultimate prophet. And then Jesus came. And, and what did Jesus say? Jesus comes down out of the mountain and he teaches, just like Moses brought the Ten Commandments. Jesus comes down in the, in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit murder. But I tell you, if you've been angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've lost, not, not, but God says this, or I'm giving you a message he comes down as God and pronounces his teaching and sets it over and against God's word. Jesus is the word of God, fully God. He's the teacher. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. And, and for King David, they finally had this king fail. But King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 was promised there's going to be a king who's going to come and he'll live forever and he will rule forever. And that's Jesus. We see in Matthew's genealogy, Abraham to Moses. We see in Luke's genealogy, which works backwards from Jesus to Adam through Mary. And so Jesus is not only he has the political right to the throne, but he also has the fleshly right through Mary. He is an offspring all the way back to Adam. He can be the second Adam. And so we have this storyline all through the Bible setting up that this Jesus is not just a man. He is a man, but he's also God. And throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel were shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. And then David says this incredible thing. The Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he presents it as, do you know who is the shepherd that all other shepherds are trying to mimic? It's God himself. God is our shepherd. But all these other shepherds fail. And so Ezekiel, in verse 30, 34, says, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. He's furious. They have failed the people time and time and time again. And so what does he say? 
he says, my sheep were scattered. And he's giving God's message. This is 400 years after David wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. And he says, I'm sick and tired of you human shepherds. You're feeding on the flock. You're, you're absolutely evil. And you're making a mess of my people. And so he says, my sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. I will rescue my sheep from their mouth, that they may not be food for them. Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. This is Ezekiel 34. So he's saying, you know what? The shepherds are lousy. I'm done. I'm going to be what David said I am. I will step down and I will shepherd my people. And this is Isaiah takes up on this theme, even though he doesn't use shepherd, but he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall, his name shall be called Emmanuel which means God with us in the flesh. And then just two chapters later in Isaiah 9, for unto us is born, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called, this future shepherd will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It's no wonder the Pharisees who understood this and the people of Israel that this is who is coming, a Messiah, a conquering king. It's no wonder that when Jesus came and he suffered and he was like a root out of dry ground that they rejected him because they, they didn't understand that this Messiah who was coming would also be a weak human being. And they expected a conquering king. Well, the Old Testament presents both. It's one person, but there was the suffering and then the conquering. And he would conquer sin, and then he would conquer sin and evil and lead us politically, socially, in the new heavens and the new earth. Then Jesus came. And we know the birth narrative. We know all of that. And what does Jesus say? He says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is saying, hey, you know that shepherd that's been promised? God himself, Yahweh, in the flesh? That's me. I'm here. Scripture is crystal clear that Jesus is God. Fully man, fully God. He is the one. He is the righteous judge of the world. They all understood that God and God alone is the judge. Throughout the Old Testament, Moses, when he judged, the judges, when they judged, they always stood in the place of God, and God was ultimately the judge. God judges. Well, when Jesus came, he said, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. We'll talk about that in a minute, but that's you know, Daniel chapter 7, which once again is a reference to God himself. All that Jesus did pointed to his deity. We don't just look for a couple of verses and say, oh, there it is. You look at the entire storyline of the Bible. Everything he did points to the fact that he was fully God and fully man. He is the righteous judge of the world, a designation only for God. Jesus forgives sin. If someone sins against you, you are the only one who has the right to forgive them. I mean, I can't say, you know, you sinned against Anne last week, which really wasn't good of you, but, but I'll forgive you. I, I forgive you. You're forgiven. No, no, no. If you sinned against Anne, you need to go to her and ask for forgiveness. And, and yet when Jesus sees the paralytic, he says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, what he's saying is, your sins against God are sins against me, because I am God, and I forgive you. He has the power to forgive. And, you know, by the way, all these things led to the people around him wanting to stone him, because they're like, wow, he's making a claim to be God. In, when, when Jesus said, you know, I am the judge, God has given me the judgment, what did they want to do? They wanted to stone him, because that was a claim to deity. He made it freely. And, and without any apologies. So he's the judge. He forgives sin. He even said that he has life in himself. He is the self-existent one. Remember Moses before the burning bush? The, the bush is on fire and God is speaking. He says, I am. And, but, but what we see there is God is self-existent. He does not need anything to exist. God is the only one who has life in himself. And yet Jesus in John chapter 5 again says, John chapter 5, by the way, is just a wonderful chapter for the deity of Christ. But he says, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. He is the source of life. That's why he could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus does not need outside interaction. He is life. Life exists within him from eternity past forever he is self-existent he receives worship you remember the summation of the ten commandments worship god with all your heart soul mind and strength it's very clear worship god and no one else that was one of the big sins of israel throughout the old testament it's one of the big sins we struggle with as we make idols in various ways it's false worship and we are to worship God only. Jesus even said this when he was tempted. Satan's trying to tempt him. And what does Jesus say? He finally just says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Again, the message from the beginning to the end of the Bible is worship God only, Yahweh only. All worship be belongs to him. The disciples when worshiped, what did they do? In Acts 10, we have one example, Cornelius, and Peter goes to him, and, and he bows down to worship Peter, and he just says, whoa, don't do that. I'm just a man. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Everybody knows you only worship God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, God says, when God brings the firstborn into the world, he says, 
let all God's angels worship him. God commands us to worship Jesus. When Jesus was born, the angels, the wise men, the shepherds, all of them worshipped him. Oh, and, and by the way, I didn't even mention this, but when the angels are in heaven and John has this vision of heaven, the, just the angels are so incredibly impressive that John bows down to worship the angel. We know that men cannot receive worship, but maybe the angels. But what does the angel do? Don't do that. Worship God. That's in Revelation 22. It might even be 8 and 9. It might even be in other places. I just looked at a few places. But I'm only a servant. We're talking an angel. Worship God. So the, the theme throughout the entire Bible, worship God only. And yet Jesus accepted worship throughout his lifetime, from the time he was born to the time he was crucified. The centurion at the end of his life. Well, first of all, Matthew 14, they're in the boat. Jesus calms the water. And they say, they, it says that they worshipped him. Truly, you are the Son of God. The centurion at, at the end of his life. Truly. He sees what's happening. And he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. That's worship. And so Jesus was the embodiment of God. And therefore, it was right and true to worship him. We don't have to go any further than that to see the deity of Christ in crystal clarity throughout the Bible, the theme of the Bible, worship God, Jesus was worshiped. Jesus controls all of creation. Psalm 65, Psalm 89, and Psalm 104, and I'm sure elsewhere, all declare that it's God who calms the seas. And, and in each of those psalms, we see people praising God for his authority to calm the seas. He has authority over nature, only God. Well, then Jesus, in Mark chapter 4, it's the similar setup. And in, in Mark chapter 4, they're afraid and they're saying, Jesus, don't you care about us? And he says, peace, be still. And the waters are calm. And it says that they were terrified. And do you know why they were terrified? Because they understood what the Old Testament had to say about God's authority over nature. They understood that. And so when they saw it happening right before them, they realized at that moment, we're in a boat with God himself, God in the flesh. And they were terrified. So throughout the Old Testament, and it's interesting how the Jehovah's Witness or New Testament, the Jehovah's Witnesses will take one verse and say, no, 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 it, you know, in the beginning was, was the word, and the word was a God. And they, they do gymnastics, Greek gymnastics that don't work. And no Greek scholar will accept the, the work that they've done. But it's like straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Okay. Even if you were able to strain out this gnat, which you can't, the, what do you do with the rest of the Bible? Every page that highlights the glory of Jesus Christ. The, the word theos is, the new, in the New Testament, the Greek word, is usually used to refer to God the Father. Several passages where it refers to Jesus Christ, and that's in John 1, John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.18, John 20.28. And so we see this word that is so commonly used in the New Testament to refer to Jesus. And it's really 
the same word as the word that we get God. And John 20, 28, Thomas answered him. You know, I, I'm not going to believe that he rose again nah, unless I see it with my own eyes. And everybody's telling him, man, well, I saw him. And here's what he did. And, and this is what I saw. And Thomas is saying, nope, not unless I see him myself. Well, then when he sees him and he touches his physical body, fully human, even after he rose again. It's not like, well, I did that for a while. Now I'm done with that human part. And now I can just be divine. He touches his human body after he rose again. And he says, my Lord and my God. Worship. Understanding this is God incarnate. Second person in the Trinity right here. Convinced. And then he says, blessed are those who believe. Yeah, you see and believe, and, and he was blessed for it. But how much better for us who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, take this and believe it, and then explore the implications of it, which we're not getting to quite yet. And then we go on. John, um, Romans 9, 5. To them belong the patriarchs, to, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Who is this Christ? He is God over all, blessed forever. Titus 2, 13, waiting for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. 2 Peter 1, 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's our God. We're dealing with a man who is the second person of the Trinity in flesh. That's just the word theos. And there's many, there's many, many more. How about just very briefly the word Kyrios. Sometimes Lord is used simply as a polite address to a superior. You know, a, you know, Lord, my Lord. And that's used, you know, a servant to their master, etc. But this word at the same time is also used to describe Yahweh. It's a word to describe God, the, the eternally existent God. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is how the word is used. Lord, and it's, it's spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Kyrios. And, and it's used 6,814 times in the Greek Old Testament. Therefore, any Greek-speaking reader in the New Testament would have understood that language, and they would have said, holy smokes. Just the use of that word. Again, there are times where it's used sir or master, but often it's used in the New Testament to refer to Jesus as Yahweh. And, and there's many, many examples. I'm, I'm going to move on, but it's referring to the one who is the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth, the omnipotent God, Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. So look, get the book, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and look through, and there's other there's obviously many other works that will take you through each and every one. Yeah, John. Just the fact that, you know, because there's another cult out of the Philippines that kind of agrees with the Jehovah's Witnesses denying the Trinity, and yet I don't think they realize what they're saying. 
Yeah. Well, he's the, we, we accept him as the son of God, but not God. It's like, it, no, that's saying he has the very nature of God. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, like, like my son. Would you, well, he's my son, so he's not the same as me, right? No, he, he's fully human. <laughs> he's my son. Um, Jesus is fully God. And we see that in the title. We see that even in the language, and so on and so forth. Other strong claims. You see Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am. And what do they do? Oh, well, you know, you can't explain that away. Because the people who were there and understood it most picked up stones to kill him. And so it's, it's very clear Jesus believed he was God. And so, again, as C.S. Lewis once put, you know, he's either deranged or he's the worst kind of liar, cynical, evil liar to deceive the world, or he is the Son of God, equal to God in every way. So the four Gospels, Jesus, the Son of Man, is used 84 times. Again, directly out of Daniel chapter 7, which describes the Son of Man as one who is fully God. And... So now two passages. We'll, we'll read these passages. And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. And we'll just, you know, I mean, you can, you can just look at one verse after another. You can look at the storyline of the Bible, the storyline of the Old Testament. You can see Jesus, he comes. And in every way, Jesus is shown to be fully God. But there are a couple of passages that just lay it out so beautifully. One is Hebrews chapter 1. And it says, long ago. And he's about to lay out. Hebrews is a beautiful book. It's amazing. It talks about how Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He's God, but he's the priest and sacrifice where all others failed that will exist forever. That renders the Old Testament null and void. Or not the Old Testament, but the, but the law, the first covenant. He is the fulfillment of it. And it, Hebrews spells it out very clearly. So long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Genesis 1.1. Infinite power. Who? Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know, all things continue to exist because Jesus is holding them together. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne. This is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness or anointed you with gladness beyond your companions. There's no oil in there. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. You're the eternally existent one who's responsible for creation. 
I lost my place. The heavens are the work of your hands. Are we there? They will perish, but you will remain. Eternity past, eternity future. They will all wear out like a garment, garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And which, to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Colossi uh, you know, I, I was at one point going to just camp out there and say, what do you think? And, and we could just stay there for half the Sunday school. But let's go to Colossians 1, 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Worthy. Worthy. And so when you hear of a religion that says, oh, yeah, we respect Christ. He was a good prophet, a good teacher. We think he was wonderful. And you think, wow, I'm glad you have such a high view of Jesus. But they think he's just a human, and they give no credence to him being the God of the universe. Do you, do you see that there is no respect there? There is nothing but disdain. And they will be condemned forever for it. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we can have high opinions of one another, but if we translate that same kind of thought toward Jesus Christ, we are infinitely degrading him. We must hold this tension. Fully God, fully man, and will be forever. Now, there's a lot of attacks against this. Um, there were several German theologians from 1860 to 1880, and then in England from 1890 to 1910, who advocated a view of the incarnation that had never been advocated in the history of the church before. And what they said was, well, you know how Philippians 2 says that th though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. There it is. So, okay, so maybe we'll give that he was at one point the eternally existent one, but when he came down to earth, he gave that up. He made himself nothing to come to earth, and that's called the kenosis theory. So did Jesus give up some of his divine attributes while here on earth? Did he cease being fully God? And the answer is no. And we talked about how both natures, fully God. Now, can God be tempted? No, but Jesus was tempted. Somehow, in his human nature, he, he experienced the full extent of what it means to be tempted, but he could never fall because he is God. He's the eternally existent one. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're accepting the humanity, but yeah. yeah. And, and this is, I'll say, I'll say this in just a minute, but um, did he give up his omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence? Somehow he had access to everything, but he chose not to tap into it ever, which just makes his perfect obedience all the more impressive makes the fact that he chose to suffer so much more impressive. He never ceased to be fully God. No Greek scholars thought this meant that he gave up some of his divine attributes. No text, or the text does not say that Christ emptied himself of some power. Philippians 2 never says that. The emptying was done by taking the form of a servant and humbling himself. It's pretty clear from the text that the emptying that took place was not emptying of divine nature, but emptying of divine purpose and taking on the purpose of one who would be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Yeah. Well, you gave earlier in Philippians 2, he's talking about how we as the church should act with each other and follow Christ's example, which is humbling himself. So the emphasis there is not even about emptying himself, it's about the humility of Christ. Okay, and that's the next thing. We must follow Christ's example not to give up essential attributes. When we follow his example, the example is not to become less human. The example is not to become less of who you are. The example is to put the interests of others before our own. So, so how did Christ make himself nothing? He took our interest and put them before his own. Fully God. Yeah. That's how he made himself nothing. Yes. And so for us, he's not asking Christians to give up their intelligence, their strength, their skill, to become a diminished version of who you are. That's not the ask. Rather, to put the interests of others before your own and before our own. Do you, do you see? It's so hard. We want to put our own interests first. But do you see how incredible it is to put the, other, the interests of others before our own? We're being like God himself. That's, how, that's the owner's manual. That's how he created us. And we function when we do that. And when we don't do that, we experience frustration. And we frustrate others. It doesn't work. But when we do that, what a noble calling. He's calling us to be like he is from eternity past to eternity future. It's not like Jesus suddenly said, well, I'm going to show him some things that I can't wait to get away from. He's showing us the character of God. This is who God has always been and always will be forever. But we get a glimpse of it, the eternal nature of God in the person of Jesus Christ as he puts the interests of others before his own. He gave up prerogative, privilege, and honor for us. Now the impetus for this heresy was not biblical exegesis, but, and that's the Philippians 2, the kenosis theory, but the impetus was it seemed too incredible and irrational for a modern person to believe that Jesus could be both fully man and fully God. So they tried to work their way around it and do gymnastics, biblical gymnastics, and it didn't work. It doesn't work because we got the testimony of the enti entirety of Scripture. So three inadequate views, very inadequate. Apollinarianism, and this was in the, the third century or fourth century, 361. And it was by Apollinaris, who was a bishop in Laodicea. And he, do you see, oh, I didn't even, I didn't write that in there, and I should have. 
well, this is human body, HD, and um, human body and divine nature. And so, do you see what he's saying? What, 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 is, what is this? And again, it's a suggestion to say, man, how do we understand how these two can be one? Well, there's got to be a way to put it together in a way that we can synthesize in our own human understanding. And it's a heresy. He says that Jesus had a human body, yep. And so there's certain parts of what, who we are as humans, our bodies, etc. But there's certain parts of God that had to be connected. God doesn't have a body. And so let's just take the divine nature, the intellect, the, the, um, our, our thought process, etc. And let's just combine those together and then we have who Jesus is on earth. So he's just taking this certain parts of who God is and certain parts of who, what humans are and putting them together. And um, Jesus had a human body, but not a human mind or a human spirit. His mind and spirit were divine. What's wrong with that? Yeah, yep, that's right. What's wrong with that? Yeah, we don't have the, the totality of who God is to worship, nor do we have the totality of, of, of what a human being is, so we don't have a representative. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, have you looked at how awful those Greek gods are? I mean, they're... It's horrible. incomplete. What kind of unity does Christ want to have with us? Maybe I'm reaching here. I might be wrong. But the unity we see between divine nature and human nature in Christ, is it in any way, how is that related? And this might not be today, but um, does it foreshadow whether um, the, the different kind of unity that, that, that Christ has with us through the Spirit is a kind of just a, a contact or is it what is that? How is that different? But because I feel like in some ways this is incomplete because it's saying it's kind of velcroed on. Well, let's let's keep looking at the the heresies that um, Hebrews two seventeen. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might be the faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. He had to be make, made like us in every way. That means everything. That means our human emotions, our human body, our human mind, our human spirit. In totality, he was like us. And, I mean, we could go on and on. We're not going to. This was rejected in at the Council of Alexandria in AD 362 and in the Council of Constantinople, Constantinople, finally in AD 381, and there were several councils, there were other councils in between. And so soundly rejected, it's, it's easy. We don't even have to look at that anymore. It's, okay, Nestorianism, that came up about 
60 years later, and this, he was a popular preacher in Antioch from, from A.D. 428, and he was a bishop of Constantinople. And he, you see what he's saying here? This is, this is the human nature, and this is the divine nature. And he's saying, okay, man, you can't get around the fact that the Bible presents him as fully God and fully man. How does that work? Well, they just remain separate. And so Jesus, I, I think I might have it, um, two separate persons in Christ, a human person and a divine person. But Jesus was not, or Jesus was united. He was not a divided person. He never said we, or he never spoke in that way. He always said I. Everything he did proceeded from one person, one united person. And so we know that he didn't exist as this schizophrenic God. Well, I'm going to operate here. No, I'm going to operate here. He was fully God, fully man. And so, so these guys are trying to understand that. And so monophysitism came around a few years later, and monophysitism, that came around in AD 451, which was only another, another about 11 years later. And, and again, they're just trying to synthesize this and just trying to say, we can't, it's not rational. So we've got to figure out how this works. And so what they said is, okay, well, they can't be too separate. So then they must be that the human nature right here and the divine nature both contribute into here and be, create a new substance, kind of like in the color wheel, I think if you put red and blue together, you have a, a green. And so, or purple? How do you make it? Oh, ye yellow. Yellow and blue. Yellow and blue. There we go. Ann knows all this stuff. Uh, apparently, all of you do too. And, um, so, human nature and divine nature mixed together. And you, you create this human-divine mixture. Do you see what he's denying? What is he denying? What is he denying? What's that? He's, yeah, he's, he's denying that Christ remained fully human and fully divine. And somehow you just, he's messing with, Christ was was neither truly God nor truly man, is what he's saying. And so in all of these, you have, you have a rejection of the God-man, who we have and who we need for salvation. And so the solution was that he's all of those. So, yeah. If those three I think we're kind of, this was in a, you know, in a Christian context. We are post-Christian, and I, and I think, you know, right now the big thing is, is he divine? And no, is it even relevant? Does it even matter? And um, so I think within the church, I think, and Brett mentioned this earlier, I think the divinity of Christ is, is really under attack. Oh yeah, let's have him as our example, and you know, you know, those, those bracelets, what were they? Um, what would Jesus do? That's kind of focusing on the humanity of the example. Yeah. Yeah. 
There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it should be no surprise to us that if this is the essence of how we are saved and how we view God rightly, if he's showing us the very nature of who God is, then it's going to be under attack. Satan's going to be working overtime in all ages to disrupt any kind of view. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that why he tells us to be like little kids? You know, in Matthew chapter 11, right before he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, he says, you know, I've rejected the wise, basically, um, and called the simple. So it, you don't be too wise. Be like a little kid who just says, man, I don't understand this fully. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contemplate it for the sake of worship and delight, but... There's only so far you can go, and you just have to say, somehow within God's economy, this works. And we have to move on, make it quick. Yeah, I just think it's an interesting example of a heart that's like, oh, I want to understand God, but really it turns into a pride of, I have the intellect to be able to be on God's love. Yes, so have the heart. I want to understand God. I want to peer into this, but have a profound humility that just says, man, I'm just scratching the surface, and, and I'm, I'm going to accept what the Bible says. So... Again, three cautions. Our, our beliefs must be rooted in Scripture, otherwise it will crumble. Must maintain a balanced doctrine and lean toward, not lean toward human only, which is more of a humanistic faith, or lean toward divine only, which becomes a mystical faith, or at least rooted in a mystical person. But, and also, we must not treat this as a box to check, rather a universe to explore. So just reflection. Our absolute inability to reconcile ourselves to God. God had to do it. It couldn't be fully man only. God had to do this because we were totally un, un, unable. And yet God did do it. How much he loves us that he would go to this extent to reach us. Try to imagine the extent of his suffering. No man could have drank the full cup of wrath. And yet Jesus came as God himself, and was able to experience eternal damnation. He experienced to the very end and rose again. God knows suffering. If you're suffering today, oh man, there is nobody on earth that can relate to you like God. God gets it, and he's sympathetic. He could just be, well, I did it, suck it up. But that's not his attitude. He's a sympathetic high priest. Um, if Jesus is truly God, he showed us what God is truly like. John 17, he approaches the cross and he says, now the Son of Man is glorified. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you know all those miracles I did? Nothing. You know, created the, the whole world? Nothing. You want to see the glory of God? Dying for your sins and experiencing the wrath on my behalf. God himself stooping down to do that. That's what God is like. That's what he's always been like. Think of 
his humility, Philippians 2, to stoop down, taking the form of a servant and humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. God can be known definitively and personally in Christ. He's a human. He was a real person. He wasn't a phantom. So that's why we try to focus on him with all our lives every single day because he can be seen. He can be known. I, I love how John says it. That which we saw with our own eyes, we touched. He, he's, he was here. God can be known. He wants to be known. Redemption is possible and has been accomplished in Christ. Christ in Christ ascended and throned. We have a sympathetic high priest who has omnipotent power to meet our needs. Sympathetic humanity of Christ. He's been there. He's experienced it all. The omnipotent power of God himself to meet us in our weaknesses and to help us. Redemption is possible and has been accomplished in Christ. Worship, obedience is absolutely fitting and necessary. It reveals the depths of our depravity. Our situation was so bad, again, that it needed a divine solution. The depths of depravity. You mean he couldn't have saved us any other way? Nope, we're that bad. He had to do it himself. Um, only God could quench the wrath of God. We could go on and on. Conclusion. It is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection. And more amazing even than the creation of the universe. This is a quote. I don't remember who I got it from. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to human nature forever so that the infinite God became one person with finite man, that will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. Amen. Any, any just, yeah. Yeah. And so when Jesus says, not even the Son of Man knows when the Father's going to come again, he's not saying, I'm not omniscient. He's saying, I am going to choose not to know. Because I could, I could know in a moment. Just like when he said, someone mentioned earlier, when he was on the cross, and he, and he said, man, I could call down a legion of angels right now. Don't, don't think that, that you got me. But I'm not going to. Yeah. Yeah. Jim. Well, in the beginning of Revelation, we have God saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the Old Testament God, God. And at the very end, we have Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And one thing we know, that when we go to heaven someday, and we, well, the new heavens and the new earth, and we experience eternity with him, we're going to be, experience eternity with the physical Jesus who has the marks of 
crucifixion, showing the love of God forever. And the Bible says there's going to be smoke rising. So we're going to have, it's, it's almost as if we're going to have this reminder of what we deserve, and we're going to see what Jesus bore for us, and, and that he will live with us forever as a man. It's incredible. But let's pray. And just a couple of you pray. That's all we, we, have, we have time for that. And then I'll close. And Lord, help us to apply this this morning in the way we sing praises to you, in the way that we listen carefully to your word when it's opened. Oh, God, to be more like Isaiah, who fell down on his face when he, when he saw you. Lord, help us to be like the psalmist, or like Isaiah says, this is the one to whom I look, he who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. You are the word of God, the incarnate word of God. Thank you, Lord. Bless this day, we pray. And Lord, we just pray that like Jesus, we would put the interest of others before our own. Lord, beat that into our thick skulls to put the interests of others before our own, that we would see that as a God-glorifying, divine-like attribute. Oh, God, help us in Jesus' name. Amen.